Let's turn together to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. This morning we're going to read the whole chapter 1 through 28. Verse 1. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed, and he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. 
Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and sleep fled from him. The king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. They have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives into the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever." He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this special time to be together and for this time now to turn our attention to the scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that as we turn to that which gives us life, by which we live, your word, we pray, Lord, that you would illuminate our minds and cause us to see what it is that you intend for us to see in this very special chapter. Lord, we pray that you administer to us through your scripture that you have inspired and preserved for us. Thank you for the privilege of reading it together. Glorify your name, we pray, in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are are probably very few people in the world who haven't heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den, right? I'm sure all of you have heard this story before, and it's not new. And for many people who are familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den, this story tends to be rather vague. It's, kind of, it's a story that we learn in Sunday school, it's a story we hear in church, but it tends to be kind of vague. Our understanding of its lesson is superficial, and more often than not, people just think of a kind of moralistic message, a moralistic point and lesson in this story, like be like Daniel, right? That's sort of the, the, the point of Daniel in the lines is be like Daniel if you're ever in a crunch. And we kind of have this sanitized version of the story as well. I don't know, even the, even the title of the story, Daniel in the Lion's Den, kind of communicates a, a sanitized version because 
the title makes you think of Daniel in the lion's den with these friendly little lions around him, right? And familiarity breeds contempt, and too often we are unsurprised at what should be surprising when we read the Bible. Let's think about this for a moment. And a man who's about 80 years old, an old 80-year-old man, is thrown to a pack of hungry lions. Now, how many of you that go to a pack of hungry lions, that is your preferred choice of death? How many of you would say that is your preferred choice of death? Imagine dying by lions. An 80-year-old man, okay, harmless, is thrown to a pack of hungry lions. Lions kill by strangulation. That's how they kill their prey. They bite you in your throat until you can't breathe anymore and you die. That's what they do when they hunt their prey. Or another way that they'll kill you by strangulation is called the kiss of death. A lion will literally bite your face with his huge jaws, clamp down your nose and mouth so you cannot breathe and you die. You die by suffocation when you're attacked by a lion. Have you ever heard of the Sabo man-eaters? They're a famous pair of lions. In 1898, the British were building a railroad in Africa near the Sabo River. And as they were building this railroad between March and December, over 35 people were killed by these two lions. And these lions would come into their camps and literally drag them out of their beds while they're sleeping and kill them. And they did this over 35 times. As recent as 2002 to 2004, one lion, who they, they actually called Osama after Osama bin Laden, alone killed 50 people. 2002, 2004. And in Tanzania, 100 people per year die by lions attacks. 100 people per year are killed by lions. Lions are natural killers. You don't train them to be like this. They're natural killers. Who made the lions this way? Who made them this brutal? We did. In a sense, right? <laughs> we are a cause, you might say. God is the one who made these killers. God is the one who turned animals into killers. Because before the fall, there was no harm between animals and animals and animals and man, right? And it was because of the world being cursed on account of our sin that God himself, out of his own mind, this is out of his own nature, he turned these cats into the killers that we're familiar with and men have simply harnessed these animals. You see, the Persians, they think, hey, these are really good killers. Let's catch them, put them into a den and throw criminals in so they can destroy them. We don't have to do the dirty work, we'll just let the cats do all the dirty work. So mankind harnesses this power. And Darius has a lion's den, and an 80-year-old fair little man is thrown into a pack of these hungry lions. They're looking, they're expecting him to be torn to shreds, to be strangled to death by these lions. That's what happens in Daniel in the lion's den. That's the story. It's not a very sanitized Family story, is it? Family-friendly story. This morning, I'd like to ask two questions. Why would this happen? Why would an alien man be thrown to a pack of lions? And second of all, what is the point of this story? What is it all about?
So first of all, why would this happen? Now look at verse 1 of chapter 6 with me. And we see that this chapter begins where chapter 5 left off. And if you remember in chapter 5, several weeks ago, Babylon is conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And, and God actually wrote on the wall that this was going to happen. And that very night it happened. And you see at the end of chapter 5, Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon exactly as God said that they would. If you remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a golden statue and he sees these divisions of kingdoms and the first one was Babylon and the second one was the Medes and the Persians. And in chapter 5, God says it would happen and it happened just as God said. God is in control of this. This isn't happenstance. When a nation takes over another nation, that's because God is in control and has allowed that to happen and it's in his plan. You remember one of the big themes of the book of Daniel is that God establishes kingdoms and God tears down kingdoms, right? God appoints kings and God takes kings out. And so it's now Darius' turn in God's plan. Nations will always come and go according to God's decree. Nations will always be coming and going. They have for thousands of years and it's going to keep happening until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But the beautiful thing is that God is in control and while nations come and go and no nation will ever stand, no nation apart from God will ever stand on its own, God's word stands forever, the Bible says. All of us are like glass. We bloom, we die. But the word of God endures forever. And those who are born of the word of God also endure forever. God's congregation, God's church always will remain, even when all the nations fall apart. If America happens to fall apart, if America goes by the wayside and it's gone forever, guess what? God's people will always be here. Those who are born by the word of God. A lot of people think that, you know, if America falls apart, then we're doomed forever. Um, That's not true. Because God is in control. Darius's turn, it's now Darius's turn in God's plan. There's some debate about the identity of Darius the Mede, and there's really two options here, and it's not a settled question. Uh, Darius the Mede is either a sub king under King Cyrus the Persian, who is in charge of the entire empire, and Darius is just a sub king of Babylon who takes Babylon at this time, or Darius the Mede is Cyrus the Persian himself, who was a Mede also. He was a Mede and a Persian. And Darius is a title, and so Darius could be Cyrus himself. And scholars debate about that, and really, it's not a settled issue, and it could be either. It doesn't change the story at all. In verse 1 and 2, like a good ruler, Darius delegates. And he appoints, it says, 120 satraps and also three commissioners over them. And Daniel is placed as one of the three commissioners. We don't know why he is. We can just assume that it was because he had a really good reputation in Babylon. And when Darius took over, um, he found Daniel to be a capable man, even at 80 years old. And he made him one of his three commissioners. And as we see in verse 3, which tends to be a pattern in this book, 
Daniel begins to distinguish himself because of an extraordinary spirit that he has, which it doesn't say here, but it is implied that it's because of God that Daniel has the wisdom that he has, right? So it's not just because Daniel is special because of his own strength or because of his own might, but because of God's spirit that is in him. And he distinguishes himself. He distinguishes himself to be better than all the rest, so much so that Darius plans, it says in verse 3, to appoint Daniel over all of the kingdom that is under his control. Now we don't, we aren't told explicitly in this chapter why these men want to destroy Daniel. It doesn't say explicitly. But it is implied as verse 4 follows verse 3, right? Because in verse 4, we now see them scheming. And the only thing we know, because it doesn't say, is that in verse 3, Darius planned to put Daniel over the kingdom. And so now these men begin to scheme. As Albert Barnes says here, no one who is acquainted with the intrigues of cabinets and courts can have any doubts as to the probability of what is here stated. Basically, he says, if you're familiar with court, courts and cabinets and governments, or maybe it doesn't have to be just governments, but maybe high businessmen or whatever, if you're familiar with all that, then it's pretty obvious why they want Daniel to be destroyed. He, they, they want Daniel to be destroyed because of envy. Envy is the reason here. They don't like the fact that Daniel is going to be put over them and over all the kingdom. They want that position. But I will add another thing. This isn't just about envy. Or there's something more to note than envy. It's one thing when corrupt men envy other corrupt men. And that happens all the time. Look at them like mafia. A bunch of corrupt guys envying each other and killing each other to go up to the top. But it's another thing entirely when corrupt men envy uncorrupt men and seek to bump them off. Because in that case, there's something additional than just envying their position. There's a disregard for what is right. Not only, not only are these men coveting Daniel's spot, but they're disregarding what is right. And in fact, Daniel's rightness, the fact that he is um, not a corrupt person, the fact that he cares about the affairs of the kingdom, the, the, fact, the fact that he is a noble man, actually makes them hate him even more. As John Calvin points out, being guilty of evil themselves, they are necessarily bitter against the virtue of others. And you can just think about the conscience of these men, and I think we all can relate to it in our own experience. Have you ever had the experience where um, your conscience bothers you by someone else? That someone else behaves rightly the way that they're supposed to in a given situation and you haven't? And your conscience is bothering you about that. And that sometimes makes you not like that person even more, right? Instead of humbling yourself and saying, well, I was wrong, and you really are doing it right, and I should learn from you, it's easier just to try to get rid of this person, right? <laughs> Instead of humbling themselves, what, what they know deep down, they're not just covering his position, but they know he's a, he's a noble man, and they know deep down that they're crooked, they would rather kill Daniel than change. So serious is their hatred for him that only death will do for them here. 
instead of acknowledging, you know, Daniel's the right man for the job. Shows what kind of men they are. They're used to their corrupt system. They understand how that system works. They don't want a person like Daniel who ruins that system for them to go to the top and be over them. So they seek to kill him. And their first attempts to get rid of him fail because what they first seek to do is they first seek to find some accusation against Daniel. Can we, can we find some way in which he's not doing his duties well or correctly or he's slacking or he's negligent? No, they can't find that. He's a good worker. He's a good employee for Darius. Darius likes him so much he wants him over all. And so these men come up with another scheme that works. And this scheme is based upon two things that they can count on. There's two things that these schemers can count on by which they base their scheme. Number one, they know that the laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed. So they think, okay, if Darius makes a law, we know that how this government works, the Medes and the Persians, those laws can never be changed. Even if the king wants to change them, and as we saw in this chapter, he wanted to change it once the edict was sent out and he couldn't. So they're counting on the fact that the laws couldn't be changed, that they were inflexible, but they're also counting on the fact that Daniel's loyalty could not be changed. His loyalty to his God. Because Daniel believed that God's laws couldn't be changed. That they were inflexible. And Daniel believed that God's laws were more important than the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And these guys knew Daniel. Everybody seemed to know Daniel's devotion, Daniel's loyalty to his God. So they could count on those those two things. These are two certainties that we can base our scheme on. Two things that are inflexible. And so these cutthroats go to Daniel with Darius with their scheme. Look at verse 7 and 8. You can see what their scheme is. The plan is that no one is allowed to give any petition to any man or any god but King Darius alone. It's such a strange petition, isn't it? No one's allowed to pray or give a petition to any god or man but to you, O king. That shows you their estimation of the gods in those days, right? (laughs) Gods are obviously not that important. Gods are not that special. Gods are not that worthy. So they can take a th- we can take a 30 day break from asking them anything because the world would go on just fine without us asking the gods anything, right? They don't really believe the gods are in control. It's really just a formality for them. So it shows you their estimation of the gods that certainly Daniel doesn't have of his god. Darius is, of course, flattered by this. Really? Okay. I like this. He sees the opportunity here to strengthen his rule and to strengthen his relations with his officers that he had appointed because these men are saying, oh, all the officers that you appointed, this is what we want to do for you. We want to honor you. We want to uh, strengthen your rule. We want everyone just to direct their petitions to you alone. And so Darius is flattered and sees opportunity in this. And so he goes along with their idea without thinking. Darius was not thinking when he gave in to their request. 
thoughtlessness, brothers and sisters, causes pain and problems. How many of you know that? Can you testify that by experience? You don't want the pain. You don't want the problems, right? You don't want the bad outcomes to happen, but simply by being thoughtless, these bad things happen. Things that you don't want to happen. An English poet, Thomas Hood, wrote this. Evil is wrought by want of thought as well as want of heart. So, evil is wrought not only by in your heart wanting some bad thing to happen, but by simply being thoughtless. Because Darius didn't want Daniel to die. And if he had known, or if he had thought this through, because he, he knew what Daniel's character was like too, and if he had thought this through, he might have said, something is fishy here, and I think this is going to be bad for the man I want to appoint over the whole kingdom. He didn't wait and think about it. And what he didn't want to happen happened because of his thoughtlessness. And thoughtlessness is a sin, and it makes us responsible for those bad things that occur. I think too often we forget that. And we think, as long as I don't have the heart for this bad thing to happen, then I'm really not responsible at all. And maybe there's a level of responsibility that's different. If you have the heart for it, if you want this bad thing to happen, you're more guilty. But even just being thoughtless makes you also responsible. People go to hell because of thoughtlessness. Who wants to go to hell? Right? Who wants to go to hell? But yet they go there because of thoughtlessness. And God commands us to love Him with all of our minds and to use our minds. It's a sin not to think. It's a sin to just go through life and not notice things and not uh, think about things In other words, to be rash about the choices that we make. That's sin. Because it leads to pain and problems, which is not loving your neighbor at all, right? Love your neighbor as yourself would also include thinking and being thoughtful and not rash, lest other people get hurt. Now look at verse 10. How does Daniel respond to this edict when he hears about it? Does Daniel hide under the bed? Does Daniel start worrying? Do you get any indication here of worry? He does exactly as the conspirators knew that he would. He just completely disregards the edict. And so everything's lining up for them. Hey, this is great. Darius gave in because we knew that he would and we know that the laws of the Medes and the Persians can't be changed. And look, now Daniel's going up to his rooftop to pray. Everything's working out just as we knew it would because those were certainties. Daniel would pray three times a day. That was his practice. And he would open his window and he would pray towards Jerusalem. That was his practice, even before this edict came about. And turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. And this will explain to us what Daniel was doing. Why Daniel did what he did. 1 Kings chapter 8, and verse 46. We should ask ourselves, you know, what's the whole, what's the deal about praying towards Jerusalem? Why is he doing that? That's an important detail when you realize the context. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46. Now this is the chapter when the, the temple in Jerusalem has just been built 
by Solomon is now being opened and dedicated. And this is the chapter where Solomon is praying to God now after the temple has been built and he's dedicating it and praying to God and asking God for his presence to be there and for his ear to be attentive to that place when people pray. And listen to what he says in verse 46. We'll just jump into the middle of his prayer. And here he's talking about when Israel is in exile. Verse 46. When they sin against you, for there is no man who who does not sin. True? And you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive and repent and make supplication, that's request, to you in the land of those who have taken them captive and they say, we have sinned We have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then hear the prayer Hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance which you have brought forth from Egypt, from the midst of the iron furnace. This is what Daniel is doing. This is what is on Daniel's mind. You see, Daniel is exactly in the position that Solomon was praying about. If your people through your anger are sent into a captive land, and in that land they turn to you and confess their sins and make supplication and petition and request to your name, hear and cause their captors to have compassion on them. For these are your people, God, the ones that you have brought out of Egypt to be your inheritance. Daniel believed this. Joyce Baldwin writes, the fact that Jerusalem was in ruins called forth faith that it would again be restored because the God who had set his name on the city was the continuing, unchanging God in control of history. If Daniel didn't believe God was in control of history and in control of Israel's destiny, And if Daniel didn't believe that God had caused Israel to go into the Babylon captivity and for the Persians to then take over, would Daniel be praying on his knees, do you think, looking out towards Jerusalem? Do you think he'd be doing what Solomon said if he didn't believe that God was the Lord of history and still the Lord of Israel and that Israel was still in God's plan and in God's hand and that he hadn't abandoned them? He would not have. And we see here in chapter 6, Daniel praying towards Jerusalem. You can, you, can just, you can guess that he was confessing the sins of the nation. He was thanking God for God's promises and that God would deliver them. He was, he was thanking God and confessing the sins, as we see him do in chapter 9. Daniel is, if you want to understand Daniel in his heart, you've got to understand this prayer of Solomon. You've got to understand uh, that he was a man who believed in the promises of God towards Israel and in God's steadfast faithfulness towards them despite what had happened. 
Daniel saw more through that window than meets the eye. He saw God's promises. He saw God's goodness. He saw God's faithfulness. He saw God's worthiness. Even though the edict said you can't make any petitions, he said, forget that edict. It was not God who needed despising at that moment. It was the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Right? Forget the laws. Our God is in control. He is the worthy one. It wasn't, forget God, I'm staving my skin. Where's God? Who's God? That wasn't Daniel's attitude or faith at all. We might ask the question, why didn't Daniel just pray secretly? Right? It's only 30 days. It's pretty harmless. Why doesn't he just stop praying publicly for 30 days? Why doesn't he close that window? Right? Don't let the other guys know what's going on. And isn't that what Jesus even recommended? Right? What's he doing? And I think this is what we need to understand about Daniel's actions here. That his continuing to pray with that window open was not a matter of pride. He wasn't opening that window so that others could see how good a person he was, right? But it was a matter of witness. Because apparently everybody knew Daniel's devotion to his God. These schemers knew it. These schemers based their scheme upon his devotion to their God. Daniel, they knew that he was a praying man, a man who who believed in Yahweh, and he worshipped God. And if Daniel had gone secret, then people would have thought that he had stopped praying. And people would have thought, oh, that edict went out, 30 days of no petition, and even Daniel's not even doing it. So here it was a, it was a matter of witness. Daniel wanted to not make people think that he was too afraid for his life, that, that he would stop praying, that he actually thought God himself wasn't worthy enough for him to continue in devotion. As one scholar, W.F. Uh, Abney, says, Of course, prayer should never be ostentatious. But if there are times when we should pray in the closet with the door shut, there are also times when it may be our duty to let devotional habits be known if the hiding of them suggests the abandonment of them in face of danger, it is our duty to let them be open and visible. And as I said, there's no sense of worry here, is there? Look at this um, back in Daniel chapter 6. Look at verse 10. Not only is there no sense of worry, there's even gratitude here. He gets on his knees and he thanks God, it says, giving thanks before his God. That makes me think of Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, where it says, Be anxious for nothing. Now maybe we might think, well, Daniel had some reason to be anxious, but he wasn't. And this is something for all of us to take home. Be anxious for nothing, even if the government signs an order that you're going to die. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with what? With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
And Daniel didn't know Christ Jesus at this time, but he knew God, and he knew God's goodness, and he knew God's faithfulness, and he knew God was in control. And that's kind of the same thing, isn't it? That's an, an example for us all. Are we thankful when we pray, or are our prayers often just anxious prayers, like, oh God, do something for me right now? Are our prayers thankful prayers? Are we thankful in times of crisis? Do we have a reason to be thankful as Christians? Yes. We have a reason to be thankful as Christians in all circumstances and at all times. We can also do what Daniel did and follow Paul's advice who also had experience with crisis. To not be anxious for anything, but to be thankful. So this is how an 80-year-old man, harmless man, was thrown into a pack of ferocious lions. It was because of these schemers and their envy and their hatred of righteousness and his loyalty to his God. And Darius tries to deliver him, but the laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed. It's amazing that despite the fact that Daniel disregarded Darius's edict, despite the fact that he disregarded the laws of the land, Darius wasn't even angry with Daniel at all. What an impression Daniel must have made upon Darius. He loved him so much that even when he did that, Darius was, more, was concerned about Daniel's life, not about the broken law. But Darius could not deliver Daniel. The, one of the most powerful men in the whole world at the time did all he could and the law couldn't be changed. And he had to sentence Daniel to the lion's den. In verse 16, we have the last words of Darius to Daniel before he sent to the lion's den. And the, the essence of these words is, I couldn't save you, Daniel, but maybe your God, whom you constantly serve, constantly, meaning even when the edicts are against you, maybe he will. And it's phrased here in our Bibles as if Darius is saying he will do it, right? But you can see by Darius' action running to the running to the den in the morning with a troubled voice, are you alive? You know, he doesn't know for sure. This is a, this is a, a, he hoped it. This was an expressed, deep desire of Darius. And it was a good desire as well. He knew that this was wrong. In verse 17, a stone is put on top of the den and it is sealed so that nothing can be changed. Humanly speaking, it is impossible for Daniel to be delivered. His fate is at last sealed. Now what is this story all about? Now when I ask that question, what is the story all about, I don't mean simply what happens next. For we all know what happens next. In the morning, Darius runs to the tomb. He had the worst sleep of his life, if he had slept at all. He runs to the, not the tomb, the, the den. He, he orders the stone to be moved. He calls out, Daniel, are you alive? And Daniel answers him, and it's this amazing deliverance that is miraculous. This isn't some bandits came and stole Daniel away in the night. This is a miraculous deliverance by God. Daniel comes out of that den and he's not even harmed. Okay? It's not that he just wasn't killed. You know, I spent the whole night getting chewed on, but I'm still alive! <laughs> I've lost a leg, but I'm, I'm here. There's not a scratch on 
Daniel at all. God was able to save him. Right? God was able to save Daniel from these ferocious lions. From these lions, these natural killers. God shut their mouths. God delivered Daniel. If you remember a few weeks ago, I mentioned how the book of Daniel is divided into two sections. There's a Hebrew and there's an Aramaic section, right? And the Aramaic section is from chapter 2 to chapter 7. And scholars have all noticed and pointed out that there's a very discernible uh, structure in the Aramaic section. There's a chiasm. And you've got in the beginning of this Aramaic section, chapter 2, and at the end of this Aramaic section, chapter 7, uh, a prophetic program or a prophetic map, an apocalyptic vision that lays out what God's doing with the nations and what he's going to do with Israel, right? And that he's going to establish his kingdom that's going to reign forever and ever and ever. And those two things are on the outsides of this structure. And then if you take a step inward from both sides, you've got chapter 3 and you've got chapter 6, and they're, they're about basically the same thing, right? The two stories are parallel. They're, they're almost identical. There's some differences. And what are those about? Those are about God's delivering of the three Hebrew men and Daniel from a similar fate, right? One, these three guys are thrown into the fire and do they get burned a bit but come out okay? There's not a, there's not a smell of smoke on them at all. And Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den and he comes out without a scratch either. They both are delivered from death, miraculously. And then if you take another step inward to the center of the chiasm, you've got chapter 4 and chapter 5, which is about God's judgment on these two rulers, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, right? And the point of those chapters is, you are to acknowledge that it is the Lord who is in control and it is the Lord who rules and not you at all. And you are to humble yourself because God will humble all the proud. These three uh, sections of the structure of the Aramaic section all work together. We've got God in control. He's doing something in history. He's got a plan. It's going to end with him setting up the kingdom and all of the human rules will be brought to an end. We've got the humbling of the pride of man and we've got the rescue and the deliverance of his people. So this, this story is about deliverance, but I'd like to ask a little bit further, what's this deliverance all about? Is the point of this deliverance story a moralistic one? God delivers those who perform rightly. If you're ever in a situation like Daniel, just do like he did, you'll be okay. If you're on an African safari and a lion jumps out, you get on your knees, look towards Jerusalem, lion will leave you alone. <clears throat> Is it focused on what Daniel did and that's why he was delivered? Or is the focus here of this deliverance story is the point of it, God can deliver from lions? God is real. God is mighty. And God can even save people from a pack of lions. Now, certainly that's a true theme in Daniel. That's a true theme in Isaiah. We've already seen in Daniel, in in Isaiah, there's this contest between the false gods and the true gods. The false gods can't do anything, but the true God proves himself again and again to be real and to be able to actually save. And this is a lesson that atheists and pagans need to learn. However, 
there is a deeper lesson still for those of us who know that God is real and for those of us who know that God can deliver in a miraculous way. I don't know about you, but when you know that God is real and can deliver, sometimes stories like this become a bit trite. Because it's like, yeah, wow, he delivered. And all the atheists and pagans' minds are blown. But we who know that God can do it. Yeah, God can save people from lions, right? God can save people from fire. That's a really cool story. But then the story just becomes a bit trite. Is there not something deeper here than just God can do that? Kind of like I think of the Apostle Paul and he was talking to the Athenians and he said, why should it be thought a strange or incredible thing that God can raise the dead? Now, it is a strange and incredible thing for those who don't know Jehovah or Yahweh. But for us who do, we say, yeah, he can raise the dead. But let's go a little deeper. The question is not just, can God deliver? The real question is, why should God deliver? And why should a story like this even be here? Why should there even be a story like Daniel in the lion's den where God miraculously intervenes on on behalf of the person and saves them from the lions? Or to put it another way, let's say you were in Daniel's shoes and you were about to be thrown into the lions and you want God to deliver you. Why should he deliver you? Think about it. What, what What are you basing that desire on? Just, I don't want to be killed. God, please save me. After all, the concept of deliverance would not even exist if Adam and Eve hadn't have sinned and eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Would we even know a concept like deliverance if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned? Would we ever be in danger? Would we ever have to cry, Help me! There's lions, they eat me. No. There would be no lion's den. There would be no need for rescue from danger. The whole reason we need deliverance is because we live in a cursed world on account of our sin. And so, since we live in a cursed world on account of our sin, since we find ourselves in situations in which we need deliverance because of our own sin then on what basis do we call out to God for deliverance? Are we asking him to set aside his justice? Ignore the fact that I'm a bad person and get me out of here. The Bible tells us that riches profit nothing. You can't pay God to ransom your soul. God, I got a lot of money. Get me out of here and I'll pay you off. The Bible tells us that there's only one thing that delivers from death. What is that? There's only one thing that delivers from death. Riches profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. And I'd like to point out that this story of Daniel in the lion's den, it shows us a pattern or a motif that runs throughout the Bible. And that pattern, that motif, is that God delivers the righteous from death. And in that light, this story is actually all about or is a pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. This is what this story is actually 
all about. Consider that Jesus Christ is the only righteous man. As we read in 1 Kings chapter 8, there is not a man on earth who does not sin, except one, right? He's not on earth anymore. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who lived, who was born into this world and lived a blameless life. He was blameless before God. Can you imagine having no sin? A, a life lived without sin. And consider also that Jesus too was envied. There was men in his life around him that it tells us in the Bible they envied him. They also did not just envy the fact that all the crowds were getting around Jesus and getting behind him and they wanted to make Jesus king, right? They envied him for his position, but they also hated him for righteousness' sake. Because as Jesus went about doing his things and when he preached, the men that were bothered the most were those men who their consciences were exposed and bothered by Jesus' preaching, right? And they felt around Jesus dirty. Now, when Jesus wasn't around, they felt clean. But when Jesus was around, they felt dirty. And rather than humbling themselves and saying, Jesus, you're right. You should be the king, first of all. But you're right, I am a sinner. You're right, I'm not worthy to enter the kingdom of God. You're right that I, I only clean the outside of the cup and not the inside also. Instead of doing that, they would rather kill Jesus. They'd rather do away with that thorn that's reminding them of their sin. And consider that Jesus, they also sought accusation against him and they couldn't find any, right? They tried to accuse him of all sorts of things and there was nothing that could be found. They also brought Jesus before a ruler and they framed him there. They were, they were pushing for his death, even though the ruler that ex- finally executed Jesus was unwilling to do so. Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus. Darius didn't want to kill Daniel. And consider that Jesus was also laid into a den or a tomb, and a stone was rolled over his grave and was also sealed. The parallels here are too many to ignore. And Jesus, too, was miraculously delivered. He wasn't put into the tomb after he was being crucified. He was just really weak and he managed to resuscitate in the coolness of the tomb as some people used to think. Jesus rose from the dead. He was not delivered from fire. He was not delivered from lions, but from death itself, which actually did devour him on account of our sins. If Jesus was killed by lions, he would have been eaten. If Jesus was killed by fire, he would have been burned. Even though those men were not burned and eaten, Jesus actually did die. And from death, having devoured him, having died, he miraculously came back from the dead. Daniel was put into a den of lions because he broke an inflexible law He broke the inflexible law of the Medes and the Persians. But Jesus, why was he put into the tomb? What law did he break? None. He was put into the tomb because we broke the inflexible law of God. True? How many of you have broken the inflexible law of God? And that law requires your death. And the only reason you're not dead right now is because of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ... He was put into the tomb for us. 
He was crucified for our sins. Darius was tricked. He didn't want Daniel to die. He was tricked by them. Pilate didn't want Jesus to die. But God was not tricked when he put his son to death. In fact, Isaiah 53 tells us that it pleased the Lord to crush his son for us. It pleased him. You and I broke that inflexible law of God and it pleased God to put Jesus into death for us. And these most amazing words of Jesus on the cross when he is just about now to expire. He says what would be presumptuous of any man but him. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That statement of Jesus as he's about to die is, is, is unlike Darius's wishful, maybe your God will deliver you. Jesus was confident that God, his Father, would deliver him from death. And that statement was, even though I'm dying here, even though your wrath is crushing me here, I am putting my hope in you, Lord, to, to rescue me. And it's not a wish. It's not a, maybe you will, trembling voice. It's into your hands I commit my spirit because I know that you will deliver me. And that wasn't presumption because he alone was the only righteous one. If he was a sinner like us, we, we, it, would be just as, it would be presumptuous to say that. Why should you say that? I commit my hands, my life into your hands. Many people say that on their deathbeds. And they say it because Jesus said it, but they say it and it doesn't really have any context. It's kind of just like, I'm dying, God, help me. But Jesus wasn't just saying it like that. Jesus knew God's righteousness and his justice. And in the face of his death, committed himself to God. It is not possible, the Bible tells us, for death to have Jesus, let alone hold him. It is not possible for death to take Jesus at all unless he had laid his life down willingly. That's what Jesus says. I have the power to lay down my life. And what does he say next? I have the power to take it up again. Right? Death isn't taking me because I'm a bad person. Death is taking me because I'm laying my life down for you. I'm laying my life down for sinners. I am the one who am giving myself to die. And death can't hold me. I am the one who had the power to take it back. Why? Because he is the righteous one. And it was on account of his blamelessness that death's hold was broken and Jesus came out of the grave. Do you believe that? You know why Jesus was resurrected, right? Because God loved him and he was blameless in the sight of God. If he was a sinner, he wouldn't have been resurrected. This story is about the righteous, that the righteous are delivered from death and therefore it's about Jesus Christ. And yet, in some very strange way, which is on account of the mercy and the love of God, this story can also be about us. Isn't that amazing? And of course it's about Daniel being delivered, even though Daniel himself wasn't righteous on his own. And how can this story be about Daniel? And how can this story be about us if it's ultimately really about the righteous being delivered from death, which points to Jesus? Then how can it be about Daniel? How can it be about us? And it's because, as the Bible says, through Jesus Christ stepping into our death, laying his life down for us, we 
the unrighteous ones, the unjust ones, who deserve death and who have no claim upon life, can be counted as righteous before God and blameless before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do not be fooled to think that Daniel was delivered from the lions because he was a good employee to Darius. Don't be fooled to think that Daniel was delivered from the lions because he lived a pretty decent life in his behavior. And that's why God looked at his life and said, Daniel, you're really a good person by how you're living. I'm going to rescue you from the lions. He was rescued because he was righteous. Because he belonged to God. He was one of God's people. One of God's righteous ones. But it was not on account of his good works. Even though certainly uh, compared to the men he was around, he was a very noble person. But that was not what made him righteous. Verse 22-23, Daniel himself says, I was delivered because of my innocence or my blamelessness before God. And he's not referring to his works or his deeds. In verse 23, we have this comment. No injury would ever was found in him. And why? Because he trusted in his God. That is the reason. It was because of faith that he trusted in God and put his trust in Jehovah. That's not a wishfulness. That's not a, a faith that had no context for Daniel. He understood the law of God. He understood he was a sinner. But he put his trust in God. And he didn't just say, God, please save me for no reason. But he said, God... I am yours, I am righteous because of, uh, through faith like Abraham, and I'm trusting in you to save me from death. Even if he doesn't save me from the lions, he will ultimately save me from death. As it is said in Hebrews chapter 11, where it gives mention of Daniel being saved from the lions through faith. And so here we have a pattern. The righteous will be delivered because the righteous one, Christ, was delivered from death. And when God does something like this in the story of Daniel in the lion's den, he's showing us something about himself. He saved Daniel from a den of lions. He's showing us something about himself that he rescues the righteous. And even though God doesn't do that for every one of his children all the time, every time they're in danger, God is not capricious. He doesn't, you know, do things uh, haphazardly. God has a wise plan why he chooses to intervene in one's life and why he chooses not to intervene in another. But one day, God will do for everyone who is trusted in him what this pattern has laid down. He will save the righteous from death. He saved Christ from death. He saved Daniel from death. And he's not doing it capriciously. He saves the righteous from death. He might not save you from any crisis if he... He might not save you from every lion's den, but you will, if you are righteous, and be encouraged by this, you will be delivered from death because that's what God does for the righteous. One day we shall rise, the Bible tells us. And he sets a pattern here for salvation and deliverance, but also for judgment. For look what happens to those who framed Daniel. I'm sure they felt really good yet the day before. Yes, Darius just made the edict. Yes, Daniel's praying. Yes, he got the the lions then. This is great. And then the next day, God turned the tables on them. And who of them would have thought that would have happened? 
And so many people today, they feel good. They feel like there's no danger. And they're not aware that God at any time can turn the tables on them. In verse 24, we see that the lions certainly did not not eat Daniel because they were not hungry. It's a fluke. They just weren't hungry. Throw Daniel back in. The lions were hungry. These men didn't hit the ground, it tells us here in the Bible. They did not touch the ground before they died. For the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. Imagine being hit with a 500-pound lion, top speed, as you're coming down this den, and all of your bones are destroyed. But I tell you that God will punish the righteous who do not believe in Christ. God will punish the unrighteous who do not believe in Christ, and His punishment will be swifter and more terrible than even these lions. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It would be better for mountains to fall on you than for God to come on you. It would be better for you to be put into a lion's den than for you to fall into the hands of God and His wrath. For these lions are but a shadow of His terrifying wrath. The book of Daniel shows us that God has a plan. The righteous will be delivered and the wicked will be punished. And one day, all the world will acknowledge this and acknowledge God. We see in verse 25 to 27 a foretaste of the world acknowledging and giving glory to God. Here, Darius announces that God's kingdom will be forever. His dominion will be forever. This is again an echo of Daniel chapter 2. One of the major themes of Daniel that God's kingdom will come and endure forever. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you know that you are righteous and blameless before God, not because of your works, and how many of you know you're not blameless because of your works? There's not a man on earth who doesn't sin. But if you know that you have put your faith in Christ, you are blameless before God, you are righteous before Him, and God is showing you a pattern that He will deliver you from death. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is a reason for you to rejoice and be thankful in all circumstances. Be encouraged this morning if you're a Christian. You will be delivered from death. Even if God doesn't deliver you from the crisis that brings you into death, you will be delivered from it because of the righteousness that you have through Jesus Christ. That's that's an awesome thing. And if you're not a Christian... God is being patient with you because it is just presumptuous to think that you can just ask God to save you if you're not righteous. And it's presumptuous to think that you still live, even to this day, because everything is fine and dandy with you and God. It is because of God's patience with you that He hasn't brought down His wrath upon you. Because God wants you to be saved. Because He wants you to simply put your faith in Christ so that you too can be delivered from death. The story of Daniel in the lion's den is for people either a, an unsurprising, sanitized story with a nice moralistic lesson, be like Daniel, or it is a surprising and powerful testimony of Yahweh, who he is and what he will do for the righteous. That he is the true and living God who will deliver his people from horrific death because of Jesus Christ. And this story can be read either ways. 
And so I pray that God will give us eyes to see his great salvation through Jesus Christ here and on every page of Holy Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a righteous and a just God and that all of your actions are based upon your justice and your righteousness. And I pray that you would help us to think about our lives, to think about your actions, to think about our situations in the light of your righteousness and your justice. And Lord, of course, as we read this chapter, we're thankful that you deliver us from our sins and from death by your great love and mercy. Thank you for loving us so much and considering us to do this for us, which you didn't need to do. Lord, please teach us to read the Bible the way that we should and help us to see these patterns as we read. Thank you so much. Give us strength in every crisis to thank you and to be glad and not to give way to anxiety. May we rejoice at all times for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.